Lord, thank you for this morning that you've given us to open up your word. I pray that you would help us to understand Ecclesiastes, help us to see what the author is trying to say, help us to understand how it applies to our lives, and uh, show us a reason to read your scripture. It's in your name I pray, amen. All right, so for the last month or so, we have been considering the wisdom literature in our Sunday school. So we've gone over Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and last week, Song of Solomon, or two weeks ago, Song of Solomon, last week was Easter. And each of these books gives practical truth for how to live in wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. They help us understand God, help us understand ourselves, and they help us understand the world in which we live. When we get to Ecclesiastes, though, at first blush, it actually doesn't sound biblical. Have you, have you guys ever read Ecclesiastes and said, wait a second, why is this in my Bible? This, this does not sound like the perspective of someone who has been redeemed and has hope in God. This sounds really depressing and non-biblical. Has anyone like, had that experience when you're reading Ecclesiastes? I know I have it at, at certain points within the book. And in fact... There is a lot of Ecclesiastes, if you read it and just take um, certain statements, it sounds a lot like secular philosophers and people without a hope in God. And to demonstrate that, I want to read you some quotes, some from Ecclesiastes and some from secular humanists, to see if you can determine which is biblical and which is just philosophy. So you don't have to write it down, this is not graded, but just see if you can determine who said this quote. First is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's Ecclesiastes. That one is maybe familiar with us. How about, what is worse than futility? Ignorance. Is that Ecclesiastes or not? That's Kurt Vonnegut, American author of the 20th century. About to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. That's Friedrich Nietzsche, the nihilist, which means that he thinks there is no meaning at all in the world. About all are from dust and to dust all return. That's Ecclesiastes. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's actually Macbeth, which is written by Shakespeare. But in addition to that, the whole story of Hamlet, if you're familiar with that, is actually Shakespeare's take on Ecclesiastes. Hamlet lives out the experience of the the preacher in Ecclesiastes. How about, there are no facts, only interpretations. Well, that's Nietzsche as well. How about, eat, drink, and be merry. That's Ecclesiastes. That's Ecclesiastes. And it's, it's also referenced several other times in Scripture. We'll look at that a little bit later. How about, a man should be glad he is alive, but furious he is going to die. That's Nietzsche as well. How about, when a man has lost all happiness, he is not alive. He is nothing but a breathing corpse. That is Sophocles, a Greek philosopher. How about, only the good die young? (laughs) That is the the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. How about, two are better than one? That's Ecclesiastes. Time and chance happen to everyone. 
That's Ecclesiastes. About what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. That's Ecclesiastes 2. And men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. That's Karl Marx. Now, some of you guys did a pretty good job. Some of these phrases from Ecclesiastes are familiar to us, but I hope that demonstrates that the words of people without any hope sound a lot like this book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes can be taken and adapted, and you could almost imagine those phrases from Ecclesiastes in the mouth of Nietzsche or Marx or others. Now, some of those men were secular humanists, which means that they think that meaning in the world is apart from God. They say there is meaning in the world, but it can't be from God. Other people, like Nietzsche, were nihilists, which means there is no meaning in the world. There's no ultimate satisfaction, no reason to live. So just do whatever you want. But the reason that these sound so similar is what we're going to be finding out today. Because we really want to ask, you know, why do they sound similar? Nietzsche said, God is dead and we have killed him. And Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the masses. So why is it that these men can say things that sound almost exactly like what we have in our Bible? There has to be a reason for these people who are so polarly opposite to have said similar things. So we're going to unpack the why, the explanation for that. But before we get there, we should take a look at some of the just introductory material. The who wrote this book, when was it written, what is it. And it's interesting because unlike Proverbs and unlike Psalms and unlike Song of Solomon, which all mention specific people who wrote the book, or like we looked at Song of Solomon, Solomon probably wrote it, but it's specifically the song that is Solomon's. Um, There is no specific human person who is referenced as the author of Ecclesiastes. There is no Solomon or David or anyone at at the front of the book. So we don't have a specific person, but we do have a lot of information to be able to build a biography of the author and then make an educated guess as to who was the actual author of Ecclesiastes. So in, if, you're, if you're open to Ecclesiastes, if you look at the first verse, it says, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And in verse 16 of chapter 1, it says, the preacher acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experiences of wisdom and knowledge. And then in chapter 2, this preacher also describes how he acquired an abundance of every possession imaginable. So this initial description leads many to say that the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. It makes sense. He was a king in Jerusalem. He was a son of David. And that the son of David could be anyone in the line of David. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. But he was an actual son of David. He was wiser than any other kings in Jerusalem. He acquired all these great possessions. And so many throughout history have ascribed this to Solomon. So it has this internal testimony. It has an external testimony that um, Christians throughout the ages have ascribed it to Solomon. And even its place in the canon shows, um, this is between Proverbs and Song of Solomon, which are both 
um, linked to Solomon. He wrote many of the Proverbs in Proverbs. He, his name is on the Song of Solomon. So it makes sense to ascribe it to Solomon. I do think that Solomon is the most likely person to have read this. I think he probably did. There are reasons we can't say for certain that he wrote it. You know, therefore, one, why is his name not in it, as it is in other books that we ascribe to him? And then in chapter 12, it seems like there's another voice who's commenting on these previous chapters, almost like someone has put this together and just made it look like it was Solomon. So there, if that's the case, then this was probably written several hundred years after Solomon, during the exile or after the exile. I don't think that's likely, but I think there are reasons to say we can't say for sure that it is Solomon. If it said Solomon, that would make a lot more sense. But I say it's most likely that Solomon wrote it during his reign, which would be in the 10th century B.C. But even though we don't have absolute certainty of who the author is, we do have absolute certainty of the voice of this book. And that's introduced in verse 1, the preacher. It says, it says that he is the preacher, um, which this word in Hebrew is koheleth, which that just means that someone who gathers people together. He assembles them, and for the reason in this book is to teach, to preach to them, to proclaim. So some of you may have teacher, some preacher, Probably no one has the assembler, because that's not really a word that we use. But this is the word that actually Ecclesiastes comes from, because the Hebrew refers to someone who assembles. In Greek, that word is Ecclesiastes. That's another name for the preacher. I'm going to use the word Koheleth as the person who is speaking to us, um, as the voice of Ecclesiastes as we go through this, since that is how the book presents itself. And that's what Ecclesiastes really is. It's a book of Koheleth, the preacher, basically talking through these different issues and wrestling through them, working through them, wanting to find an answer, and doing so for the instruction and the benefit of those who are listening. So we're almost kind of being let into his internal conversation in his own mind, where he's saying, this is what I'm wrestling through, I want you to hear it too. So I've created this document. For us to all hear. So what does Koheleth, who is this preacher, the king in Jerusalem, and who is wiser than any king before him, what does he say? If you look in verse 2 in chapter 1, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, if I told you, if you didn't have a lot of experience, maybe with the, the terminology of vanity of vanities, if I told you that Nietzsche has said that, it probably wouldn't be that hard to believe. That someone without any hope in God or belief in meaning in the world, he could say that and say, yep, I check off on that, I believe that. There is no meaning in the world, it's all vanity. There's no point to living. But this is inspired scripture. This is from the voice of Koheleth, and that is ultimately from the mouth of God, passed down to us over generations and centuries. And so we have the chance to unpack it and determine what it means. And in these verses, in verse 2 and 3, and then in verse 14, we can actually see the, 
main point of Ecclesiastes boiled down and concentrated. So we'll spend a little bit of time just unpacking that. Now, Koheleth focuses on the vanity of life. And of the eight Hebrew words that are used in verse 2, five of them are that word for vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You can tell this is the point he's going to hammer on throughout the entire book. And that word for vanity is the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel. Hebel is used dozens of times throughout the rest of the book, and it really is the theme. It's the main reason that he's writing this book, to understand what is hevel, what is this vanity. Now, your, your translation probably has something like vanity or meaningless or futile or futility, something to describe that. And this is one aspect of hevel, this idea that it's frustrating, it's purposeless, there is this vanity, not vanity in the sense of being like stuck up or proud, not that type of vanity, um, but vanity in the sense of being without hope. That this is a vain purpose. There's no reason to do this. There's no hope in doing this. And so Koheleth tells us that all of life is futile. All of it is meaningless. That's one aspect of Hevel. But there's more to it. Um, because even though vanity or meaningless, those are good kind of one-word summaries of hevel, there's more to this concept. The Hebrew word could also be translated as smoke or vapor. It's like a mist. And, and this gets the idea that it's something that we cannot grasp. We cannot put our hands on. We can't wrap our minds around it. It's like the idea where if you're at a bonfire, you can pick up a log, you can grasp a log and throw it into the fire, but if you tried to grab the smoke coming off of the log, you would open your hand up and there'd be nothing there. Your hand would smell smoky, but you wouldn't have any smoke in your hand. And so this idea is hard to grasp in one word. There's this enigma of life. There's a paradox. It's meaningless. It's purposeless. It's like chasing after the wind is another phrase he uses to describe it. I'm just going to use the word hevel as we talk today because that gets at the broader idea that he's working at, that it's probably a little bit bigger that we can grasp in just one English word. But if you look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, he he kind of develops this idea of Hevel and introduces us to what he's going to be talking about. He says in verse 3, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So he says, the earth is here long after we are. What is our life in comparison to the longevity of the earth? Our lives are nothing. Then verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. He says life is repetitive. It's the same thing over and over and over. The wind blows to the south, and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. And he's going to describe more about the repetitive nature of life. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has, already in the, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So Koheleth is saying our lives are short. Death happens to everyone, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're wise, whether you're foolish. There's nothing we can do to avoid this. There's nothing one person can do to set themselves up for guaranteed success in life. He's saying life is inconsistent. The wise man suffers while the foolish man prospers. He says, I I thought Proverbs told us that this was not the way it was going to be. I thought if I was wise, I would have success. Why isn't this working in my life? He says, hevel, hevel, all is hevel. Everything that I thought was going to work has come crashing down on top of me. And like I said, he, he uses the phrase that hevel is like chasing after the wind. It's similar to the idea of trying to grasp smoke is if we're trying to grasp the wind. You can feel the wind. You can experience it. You can... I played golf yesterday for the first time in like 15 years, and the golf did not, or the wind did not help, because I could feel it and experience it, but I could not master it. It, it uh, certainly mastered my shots. But it reminds me of my, my family's dog, where if it was a windy day out, she would run out into the wind and try to grasp it in her mouth. And she would just end up look really, looking really goofy. She's just running around biting at nothing. We're saying, what is going on? But that is what it is like trying to get our minds around and our hands on this enigma of life, the hevel that we see in the world. So the message of Ecclesiastes is really positive and encouraging. It's really exciting for us and something that we can hold on to as a promise for today. And Everything that we've looked at so far sounds like Nietzsche, not Koheleth. But the answer, the, really the point of Ecclesiastes is this is how we should look at the world. This is reality. And it's the reality because of sin. This isn't just a, a sick and demented look at world. This is realistic because it's taking into account what sin has done to God's creation. You can Think of Ecclesiastes as a commentary on Genesis chapter 3, because it's showing what has happened as sin has worked its effects all throughout the world. Because sin has entered the world, everything in life is broken and it doesn't function correctly. And it's possible that the word hevel is even an allusion to Genesis chapter 4, where Cain kills his brother Abel, which is the Hebrew word hevel. So it's almost like he's alluding back to say, look how much sin has twisted things, that even a brother would kill his his family member, his brother. So Ecclesiastes sounds depressing, but it's not as much depressing as it is realistic. Koheleth doesn't settle for platitudes in a world where terrorists bomb Easter services, and people shoot up schools, and little kids get cancer. Koheleth is really wanting to wrestle with these difficult things in life and say, how can these things be if God is in control? How can these things be if God created the world? I want to know, I want to understand, because there is an issue here. He's not looking at all these bad things and saying, well, life is not that bad. 
Every day is a Friday. I'm just going to enjoy life and, and kind of ignore these things. He's not just going around singing Hakuna Matata or Don't Worry, Be Happy. He's saying, no, there are problems in the world that I can't just overlook. But this is really why we need Ecclesiastes. Because as Christians, we have scriptures that deal with these extreme issues in life. We don't have scriptures that skim over it so that when we enter into those deep valleys, we say, I don't know what to do with this. We say, no, there are people who've gone before me who've already wrestled with these things and have helped me to understand the answers. Now, this makes Ecclesiastes a lot different than Proverbs, but the books are not at odds with one another. Even though they seem to be conflicting, this is not an inconsistency in Scripture. This is not God had designed the entire Bible and then somehow someone snuck some pagan philosophy into the middle of the wisdom literature. That's not correct. And in fact, Ecclesiastes includes several sections of Proverbs that would fit right in with what he has included in um, that book. But the reason that these books sound so different is that Proverbs addresses life in general, whereas Solomon addresses the exceptions. Proverbs says, this is how life generally works. And Ecclesiastes says, yes, when it's not so clear-cut, here's how it works kind of on the edges. You could say Proverbs focuses on the nature of wisdom, which is true in everything that it says, whereas Ecclesiastes focuses on the nature of sin and its effects in the world. The wisdom in Proverbs is a good thing that should be desired, and Ecclesiastes doesn't take away from that, but Ecclesiastes shows its limits. It shows that you shouldn't press it to be an absolute guarantee, but rather a general principle. Wisdom is not a get-out-of-hevel-free card, and Ecclesiastes exposes that. Now, we looked at Job. Carrie taught us Job about a month ago, and that does the same thing to Proverbs. It's also a foil to say, yes, this, these things are true, and if you look in Job's life, he would be someone you considered a wise man, and so you would think, okay, this man is going to have success, and that's true for the majority of his life up till the beginning of Job. Job shows us that sometimes things work differently than we would expect because of God's sovereignty. They show that sometimes God works in different ways for different purposes than we would expect. Ecclesiastes does the same thing, except instead of showing how God's sovereignty can change things from how we would expect them to be, sometimes it's sin that affects things to make them different than we would expect. We can see this idea of how sin affects things in our world in the phrase, under the sun. This is another one of Ecclesiastes' famous phrases that he has kind of coined, Koheleth has coined. He says that everything is hevel under the sun. Everything that occurs under our sun's light is chasing after the wind. It's like if, if you guys have seen the movie Lion King, I guess it's the second time I've referenced it, I have Lion King on the brain. There's the scene where Mufasa takes Simba up on the mountain, he says, everything that the light touches is under our control. That is what's going on with this phrase, under the sun. Everything that the light touches is affected by hevel. Everything that exists underneath the sun, whether it's an aspect of the physical realm, whether it's time, a place, a time, an age, anything, is affected by hevel. This covers our birth, our death, it covers joy, despair, work, play, wisdom, folly, you name it. It's another way of describing the all-encompassing enigma 
of life. But this phrase is very intentionally chosen. He chose everything under the sun on purpose because there is someone who is not under the sun. There is someone who created the sun and is over the sun. You could say the sun is under God. And this is where the philosophy of Ecclesiastes veers off from secular humanists and nihilists and every other human perspective. And this is because the point of Ecclesiastes is not that life is meaningless. The point of Ecclesiastes is not that life is meaningless. The point is that life is meaningless without God. Life is meaningless without God. And that's a very important distinction. But Koheleth doesn't just give us that one phrase and move on. You know, in theory, you could have this this phrase, life is hard, but God makes it worth it. That could be in Proverbs somewhere. But we've been given the book of Ecclesiastes to wrestle with that idea, for him to show us over and over and over throughout these 12 chapters that this is not something that we can just kind of brush off and, and treat lightly. This is a really difficult issue, and so we want to give it some time to develop it for us. And we can look in chapter 2 to see him explain this. And what he's basically going to do in chapter 2 is show all these different areas of life that people turn to to find meaning, to find pleasure. And these are things that ultimately are going to cause him to say, all these things are hevel. All these things don't have any meaning. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart so guided me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Now what you hear in what he's saying in all of these different things he's explored. He says, I've tasted it all. And he sums it up in saying, anything my heart wanted... I gave it. We can fill in the blank here of of what that one thing that we could want that would give our life some more purpose. If we just had this one thing, Solomon said, yeah, I did that like 20 times. I had everything that I could want, and when that kind of faded, I got the new version, the new itch that my heart had. But look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
He says, everything that I tried to find meaning in came up lacking. It wasn't good enough. And you may look at this and say, well, yeah, you tried all the wrong things. You just tried all these pleasures of life. What about wisdom? Don't you remember this book of Proverbs that you wrote? Well, if we look at what he comes next, he actually talks about wisdom. In verse 12, he says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So you can even see he's praising wisdom and saying, compared to folly, wisdom is better. Yeah, it's true. And yet, I perceived that the same events happened to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For if the wise, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all who will have been all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. And this is really the beauty of Ecclesiastes, that he looks that even the good things, like wisdom, and he says there's hevel in that even. There are no holy cows for Koheleth. He's, he's not afraid to take on any aspect of, of life. It's almost like he's picked up the book of Proverbs and read the promises of success and wealth and a good life that come with wisdom, and he said, yes, but, and he points out some exceptions. The fool and the wise both end up dead. And sometimes the fool succeeds where the wise fails. But he isn't done. Look at verse 18 in chapter 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He's saying, yeah, I work my whole life, but then I don't get to enjoy it. And someone else who didn't work for it gets it. Verse 19. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Have you ever read someone's Facebook post like that? And said, hey, you need to stop complaining. Doesn't that remind you of, of kind of the issues that we have in life, where you could hear someone say that and kind of look down on it? It's a little bit different when we read it in the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> because, and the reason that it's different is because he's not done working through what this means. Koheleth is saying that pleasure is pointless, and wisdom is pointless, and work is pointless. There's no meaning that he can find in all these things. They are all hevel. So what does he tell us to do? He says, eat, drink, and be merry. You say, wait, what? No, he says, eat, drink, and be merry. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. You see, what Koheleth has done in these chapters is to point out that there is no ultimate fulfillment in anything under the sun. There is no ultimate fulfillment. Pleasure doesn't satisfy. Wisdom doesn't satisfy. Possessions don't satisfy. Nothing does. Because none of them were meant to give us that level of satisfaction. He's pointing out the vanity of trying to get this satisfaction from anything under the sun. You can't get it there because it's not there, because it was never meant to be there. So no matter how great your marriage is, or no matter how great your kids are, or how much money you have, or how great your vacations are, ultimately, they're not going to satisfy. They'll give you a level of satisfaction, but they can't give you ultimate satisfaction. Only God can do that. Only God is meant to do that. And so life is hevel, but don't despair because God is greater than hevel. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. So the, the conclusion that we draw from this, if, okay, we can't find any satisfaction ultimately in anything on earth, the conclusion is not to become an ascetic. It's not to become a monk who gives up all his possessions and never eats and goes sits on a pole just praying. That's not the message of Ecclesiastes. That's not the application. The application is that because of this truth, because we can't get the ultimate satisfaction in anything, is that we should enjoy the things of life appropriately. That's the key word, appropriately. It means don't turn pleasure into a God. Don't turn your spouse into a God. And don't force money or wisdom or your job or anything else to become your ultimate satisfaction. Because ultimately, that endeavor will be hevel. It will fail. Instead, enjoy them as gifts from God as he intended them to be. Ecclesiastes is helping us to put things in the right perspective, put them in the right order. And this is how Koheleth is different from any secular philosopher. He has all the same information. He has the same experiences. And you could even argue he has more experiences, especially if this is Solomon, that he's been able to do anything that he wants. Anything that he wants. So he has more experience maybe than these other philosophers. But he draws different conclusions from all of that information. Instead of coming away from Hevel depressed, he comes away with a philosophy of life that allows him to find ultimate satisfaction. Because he's not seeking it in anything on earth, he's seeking it in God. Ecclesiastes is a lens through which we can see the world. And it helps us to deal with Hevel. Now, I mentioned that the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, that's used in other portions in Scripture, and it's from Ecclesiastes. But it's used in Isaiah, it's used in Luke, and it's used in 1 Corinthians. But in each of those contexts, it's not eat, drink, and be merry. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a slight but significant difference. Because in each one of those uses, in Isaiah, it's talking about Israel, who is partying even while they have an enemy at the gate. Because they're saying, well, we're going to die tomorrow, so let's just live it up. And in Luke, Jesus is telling a parable of the ruler or the farmer who has this abundant crop and says, well, I'm going to party because this is it. And then God says, no, your life is going to be demanded of you tonight. 
And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for life is pointless. And each of those uses in Scripture is actually taking it to the opposite side. And this is also kind of the calling card of nihilism. This is a phrase that you could sum up that philosophy that nothing in life has any meaning, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that is not what Ecclesiastes is saying. Ecclesiastes is saying, eat, drink, and be merry because God has given you these gifts to do that with. He wants you to do this, but he wants you to enjoy it appropriately. Not to, find, not to make food or drink or enjoyment your God, but to enjoy them as the gifts he has given. He says, this is your lot. This is the gift from God. Now, if you read through Ecclesiastes, and I would encourage you to do that. I hope it's not an intimidating book that will send you into a spiral of depression, but if, hopefully this is helpful to see what he's trying to do. If you look through, this same theme occurs over and over and over. You can start in chapter 3, where he gives this well-known poem about time. He says, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You may have heard those as song lyrics. It's actually from Ecclesiastes. Now, this is poetry that's even often read at secular weddings. It's a very beautiful expression of life and, and how life has different seasons for different things. But Ecclesiastes is using it to show life changes a lot. It's not just one thing. But the, the verse that is not usually read at these weddings is the verse that comes after the poem, in verse 9. And that verse says, What gain has the worker from his toil? Essentially what he's saying is, yeah, life has all these different facets, but what, the, what is the point of going through them? What is the point of of mourning and singing and dancing and being wed and being born. What's the point? That verse is usually not read at the altar when a couple is standing there to be married. But the following verses explain it. Verse 10 says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in its toil. This is God's gift to man. So Ecclesiastes is saying, yeah, you can enjoy all those things. There is a time for this, and it's good, but just don't make that the ultimate thing. And he does this throughout the book. In verse 17, he considers how justice is withheld from people who deserve it, but he reminds us that justice has its time, even if it's not our timetable. In 3.22, he compares humans to animals and say, we die just like them. What makes us different? His conclusion is, trust God with your eternal state and enjoy the work that God has given you. In chapter 5, he dwells on a hard worker who's saving up for his children, and he loses it all by chance. But he answers with his common refrain to eat, drink, and be merry. Accept your lot, rejoice in your toil, because it is the gift of God. Koheleth is arguing with himself. He's saying, but what about this? And then he argues himself back to truth. He says, what about this? And he brings himself back to the truth. And this helps us when we are in those deep valleys of, this doesn't make any sense. We can see that someone has gone before us to bring us back to truth. We don't have time to look through all of the different sections in Ecclesiastes, but he goes through over and over and over. One that was impactful for me is in chapter 
11. In verse 9, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And he's basically telling people, he's telling young people, look, your youth is a gift. So enjoy the youth that you have. Do things that you won't be able to do when you get older, as you get restrictions, as you go past your peak years. This isn't YOLO. He's not saying you only live once, but he is reminding people that, hey, even your youth, your time of life, is a gift. But then, if you read further in verse 9, it says, God will judge you for all that you do. So even in this reminder to use this gift of God, he says, but don't just use it the way the world wants you to. Don't do all the things that youth in the world do. Use this as a gift, but use it appropriately. Because everything you do is seen before God. But before we close, we need to consider chapter 12. Because this really summarizes the book of Ecclesiastes. And <coughs> near, the, near the end of the chapter, it kind of switches from Koheleth speaking to someone speaking about Koheleth, someone talking about the preacher. And this could just be Solomon writing and kind of switching voices and just summarizing it on his own. It could be someone that is putting this together after Solomon has written it and is kind of commenting on it and tying it up. Either way, they're inspired authors from God. But verse 11 says that the words of Ecclesiastes are, the words of the wise, are goads. A goad is a tool that a shepherd would use. It's a long stick with something sharp at the end. And it was used to poke sheep to get them back onto the path. It was painful for a moment, but ultimately the purpose of the goad was to keep the sheep from much greater harm. And that's a pretty accurate description of Ecclesiastes. As we read through this, there are some painful points where he says, he kind of makes us think and say, oh wow, life really doesn't make sense. And wisdom doesn't always do what the Bible says. And what am I going to do? That's painful. But each time, Koheleth brings us back to the truth and helps us see life correctly. And in that sense, it's like a goat, where it hurts initially, but ultimately, this is for our good. And that's a good description for a lot of scripture, by the way. But verse 13 puts the final nail in the coffin to show that Koheleth is using this for our good. He's not just a nihilist trying to strip down all of our beliefs. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So after going through all of heaven, after showing how pervasive it is, after showing how difficult life is, he says, the conclusion, what you should do with that is fear God and obey him. Even though life is difficult, even though it doesn't always make sense, it's still best to trust God. It's still best to live in light of who God is. Because only by following God can we find any level of meaning and satisfaction and joy in this life and in the life to come. Now, one, one question that we've asked of these books as we've gone through the Old Testament, specifically some of the more obscure books, is what would the Bible be lacking if this book was not in it? Essentially, why did God put this book in the Bible? With Ecclesiastes, I think we can answer that without Ecclesiastes, we wouldn't have this depth of wrestling with the effects of sin in the world. We wouldn't have this depth of seeing the enigma and the, the difficulties of life. 
Because Ecclesiastes helps us when we are in those times to say, okay, I'm not alone in this. Other people have gone through this, and there is a point to stay the course. There is a reason to keep trusting God. And it helps us when we're seeking the satisfaction in things of earth that ultimately come up short to say, okay, this wasn't unplanned. This was intentional because these things were never meant to satisfy. So as you read Ecclesiastes, I hope you're not discouraged, but I hope that in times of discouragement, it can help you come back to truth. So let's pray and then I'll close. Lord, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and for the truth in it, even though it's difficult at first to see. Help us to come to love this book and the truth within it. Pray that you would help to guide us in this life of hevel and difficulty and purposelessness and help us to find our satisfaction in you. It's your name I pray, amen.